you know, I think Prabhu, one of the things that we can safely say, he's reinvented himself from a military figure with human rights violations to somebody who now is appearing on TikTok videos as kind of a cuddly grandpa. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Indonesia is the third largest democracy in the world. And on February 14th, national elections were held to replace the extremely popular outgoing president, Joko Widodo. He's better known as Jokowi. The current defense minister, Prabowo Subianto, won those elections and will be Indonesia's next president. He is a controversial figure who's been credibly accused of human rights abuses during Indonesia's long Suharto dictatorship. He was also a former rival of Jokowi, but received the popular president's backing while tapping the president's son to run as his vice presidential nominee. Indonesia is a massive democracy in an increasingly strategic region. So what does Prabowo Subianto's election mean for Indonesia's foreign policy, its relationship to the United States and China, and for broader global trends like climate change. To answer these questions and more, I speak with Prashanth Parmaswarn, a fellow at the Wilson Center and founder of the ASEAN Walk newsletter. We kick off discussing Prabowo's background before having a longer conversation about how this change in government will impact Indonesian foreign policy. As always, please do reach out to me via globaldispatches.org if there is anything on your mind. I love hearing from you. I particularly appreciate your suggestions of topics I should cover or people I should interview. Do send them my way. And while you're at globaldispatches.org, be sure to sign up for our newsletter as well. It's a great companion to the podcast for sure. Among other things, I post transcripts to most of the episodes you hear on the show. Now, here is my conversation with Prashanth Parmaswarn of the Wilson Center. Mm-hmm. 
So as we are speaking, the votes are still being counted, but it's clear that Prabowo Subianto will be declared the winner. So what do listeners need to know about him? What's the best approach to learning about who he is and how he might govern? He is a known figure regionally and globally. I mean, this is somebody who served in the Indonesian military initially um, had some controversy around some human rights abuses, you know, back in the 1990s, but then reinvented himself as a political figure. So he's run for office multiple times, including twice against President Joko Widodo or President Jokowi, the incumbent, who's now term limited and can't run for another term. And Prabowo was also his defense minister. So he was his twice opponent turned defense minister. And so he has extensive personal relationships around the region and very well-known issues with respect to the global landscape. I think the other thing I would say is, I think we've been used to over the past decade, for those who monitor Indonesian foreign policy very closely, President Jokowi is is somebody who's a very sort of unassuming figure, somebody who doesn't really have a lot of interest in sort of high geopolitics. Prabowo is, I wouldn't say the opposite, but he's very different from President Jokowi in, in that regard. He is not afraid to speak his mind. He's made a lot of headlines just in the past few months about proposing a new initiative on Russia-Ukraine, for example. He's talked about how Western countries are kind of looking down on Indonesia, and perhaps the focus of the world is shifting to Asia, so Indonesia doesn't need the West anymore. So this is somebody who you know is going to be very outspoken in Indonesia's foreign policy, which we have not been used to in the past decade or so. So I think those are a few things that we may want to watch with respect to Prabowo as a person when he takes office. And how might the United States in particular navigate its relationship with Prabowo? You know, you mentioned earlier some human rights issues. Those were, I believe, related to the torture and disappearance, if not execution, of a number of human rights activists and democracy activists. And I believe he was even barred from the United States for many years. Yeah, that's right. So this was Prabowo's reputation with respect to his relationship with the United States. I think the big thing to watch for with respect to Indonesia's relationship with the United States is the trend in the last two terms of Jokowi of the last decade is that Indonesia has sought first and foremost for economic sources of investment to power its development as a middle power. And the big source of that has been China. Not because Indonesia is ideologically sort of leaning towards China, but because that's essentially where the financing and investment has come from. But there's a lot of concern within Indonesia about needing to diversify sources of investment. And so Indonesia has looked to Japan, it's looked to other countries, including the United States, to try to diversify its relationship. So last year, Indonesia upgraded its relationship with the United States to the level of a comprehensive strategic partnership when Jokowi visited the United States. There's a lot of talk about greater cooperation in areas like semiconductors, for example, higher education, and so on and so forth. But ultimately, for Jokowi and for Indonesia's next president, if Prabowo happens to be confirmed in that role and be inaugurated, they're going to be looking for actual investment and substantive cooperation. And that's been more difficult. A good example of that is Indonesia has been seeking a critical minerals agreement. Indonesia is one of the world's largest sources for some of the key critical minerals like nickel, for example. But it's been really difficult for the United States to agree to that, in part because 
China has had a hold in terms of Indonesia's sort of critical mineral sector because of investments they've made there. But there's a lot of environmental issues, labor issues, and that creates a lot of challenges for the United States in terms of how they're going to navigate that relationship with Indonesia. So I would say strategically, Indonesia, particularly on the security side, welcomes more security links with the United States, military exercises, so on and so forth. The difficulty is going to be how that translates into the United States playing a role for Indonesia's economic development. And that continues to be a challenge because China has a sort of perceived upper hand in that regard. And you're saying it is like a critical minerals agreement that would, you know, spur or inspire greater economic cooperation between Indonesia and the United States. So what exactly is like a critical minerals agreement in this context, in the context of U.S. foreign policy in general? Essentially, this comes out of the fact that the case that the Indonesians have been making for this is the fact that you know, if the United States is truly interested in the kind of strategic reality that China has been sort of one of the key sources of these critical minerals, and the United States is on a path to sort of diversify away from aging and create more sources for these critical minerals. And Indonesia is one of the places where those critical minerals come from. So if the United States and U.S. companies were to be able to set up shop in Indonesia and do more interactions in that space, and perhaps even with U.S. government support, it could be a win-win where Indonesia would benefit from diversification in its critical minerals industry. It's not so reliant on China. The standards would improve in terms of labor and environmental standards. And also the United States would benefit from getting these critical minerals from Indonesia. Now, the rub or the challenge is that Indonesia is not interested in a sort of extractive model for critical minerals where you know, Indonesia just kind of has these minerals and companies come in and they just extract it in a very sort of almost a colonial sort of mindset. And then they sort of do all of their operations and add value outside. Indonesia wants to add value inside Indonesia. But that creates a bit of a challenge for U.S. companies because they need the enabling environment to actually operate within Indonesia. And that enabling environment isn't necessarily always going to be conducive for those companies because China has a little bit of an upper hand in that regard. So it's a little bit of a chicken and egg situation about the extent to which Indonesia is able to create that enabling environment and the extent to which the United States is able to put money on the table to advance this. So far, my understanding at least is that the Indonesians have not been very enthusiastic about how quickly the United States is moving in this direction. That being said, within the comprehensive strategic partnership, there are other areas where the United States and Indonesia have committed to work towards. One of that is semiconductors. And there, there is a designated fund that comes out of the CHIPS Act that the United States passed recently under the Biden administration. And Indonesia is one of those countries that's going to be prioritized for the United States working on semiconductors. So that's another area where even if we don't see a lot of progress, perhaps on the critical minerals front, we might see some of the progress in other of these sectoral areas with semiconductors being one example. So it just seems that there is just a lot of opportunities to advance the mutual interests of Indonesian economic development, U.S. security interests, and U.S. hard economic interests as well. There's just seemingly like a plethora of opportunity there. But I wonder to what extent that might be undermined by Prabowo himself. I mean, we've seen 
a degree of backsliding, democratic backsliding in Indonesia over the last few years. And from all I've gathered of what you've intimated, Prabowo seems to be likely to accelerate that process of democratic backsliding. Do you see that complicating Indonesia's relationships with the West in general and the U.S. in particular? It's a good question. And I think there are some people who are concerned about this in Indonesia. This came to a head in particular when Jokowi, through some very controversial political maneuvering, had something in place where his brother-in-law, who was making a key decision in Indonesia's constitutional court, made a decision to lower the age requirement such that Jokowi's son would be able to enter Prabowo's ticket as the vice president. Just to emphasize that, so Jokowi, the massively popular current president, had a brother-in-law who sat on the equivalent of a high court who allowed Jokowi's son to become vice president to Prabowo, despite the fact that the son ostensibly was too young to hold the position. Exactly. That's right. And in spite of the fact that, you know, Prabowo had been his two-time election opponent and then came into the cabinet as the defense minister. So if anything, this shows how flexible Indonesia's politics is. And it also shows how the fear and concerns about democratic backsliding have really come to the fore under President Jokowi. I think, you know, there is a sense, you know, on the one hand that, you know, Indonesia's democracy has proven quite resilient since the late 1990s when it transitioned away from President Suharto after the Asian financial crisis and became a democracy. It's held multiple successive elections where, you know, no one has contested the outcome actively and followed through on that. But obviously, this remains to be seen. I, th I think one optimistic thing you can point to is the fact that Prabowo has declared victory already in the election. We don't have the official count, but none of the other two candidates who are competing have outright come out and challenged Prabowo and said they won't respect the decision. In fact, it's quite the contrary. They've said, we're going to wait for the official results and we'll respect whatever outcome that's going to emerge. But I do think looking forward to a Prabowo administration, assuming that he becomes Indonesia's president, that's going to be very complicated. I think on the one hand, you know, you have this tendency where Indonesia has multiple centers of power. They're very flexible. They move quite quickly. It's very difficult for one person to transcend that. But on the other hand, as we've seen with President Jokowi, we have seen some weakening of Indonesia's institutions. I pointed to the Constitutional Court, which actually has had history of providing a lot of very fair decisions over the past few years. It's had a very good record, but now we have this concern. I should add, even after Jokowi's son was allowed to become vice president, there was a decision to actually remove Jokowi's brother-in-law from actually making decisions when it comes to the political process. But the fact that that ruling is binding means that you can't change the actual decision, right? So that's on the constitutional court. But even away from the constitutional court, Indonesia has had a anti-corruption commission. And when Jokowi first came into office in his first term, he mentioned that one of the things he wanted to do was to tackle corruption. And that was one of the things that catapulted him to power. But during his two terms in office, the anti-corruption commission has seen some of its power erode as well. So I think there are some concerns about Indonesia's domestic political landscape. But in terms of how they affect foreign policy, that is a little bit more uncertain. I mean, I do think that there are some in the United States, including some in the White House, for example, 
who see Indonesia, rightly or wrongly, as being a swing state in terms of U.S.-China competition. And so it is really important, irrespective of the domestic political challenges that Indonesia faces, for the United States to engage Indonesia in this regard. Now, I think the big concern there would be to what extent is the United States willing to overlook democracy and human rights concerns if they come to the fore? And I think if they exacerbate under a Prabowo presidency, that would be quite unfortunate in that regard. One other thing I would point out, Prabowo is, as I said, a very well-known figure in the international and regional landscape, but he's also going to be governing, assuming he becomes president, in a very different environment. You know, Jokowi lent his support to Prabowo, which would play a role in terms of how Prabowo got to the finish line. He wasn't able to win the last two elections. But Prabowo is very different from Jokowi. So it's very unclear how that popularity of Jokowi is going to translate to Prabowo when it comes to governing. And if he doesn't have that support and he proves to be a very divisive figure, we could see a lot of complications mm -hmm. during his presidency. And in Indonesia's atmosphere of flexible coalitions, that's going to be important. You know, we have the presidential elections, but we also have legislative elections in Indonesia. So we need to find out what the balance of political parties are going to be and what support Prabowo is going to have in Indonesia's legislature and how that's going to play out as well. How would you characterize President Jokowi's foreign policy? And do you expect Prabowo to kind of steer Indonesia in any substantially you know, new or different direction? I think, you know, that's a question that's obviously going to be looming for the next few months. I think one thing that we can safely say, as I mentioned earlier, is that Prabowo is not going to be one of those people who, like Jokowi, is going to be, you know, very coy about what he says about high geopolitics. He is going to want to be very active. You know, Jokowi, you know, even if you look at his participation in sort of uh, the UN General Assembly, he's failed to show up. If you talk to people from the Indonesian Foreign Ministry, they will actively say, you know, Jokowi has questioned why he should be at some of these regional meetings, including meetings within ASEAN, which is quite different from how Indonesia has been perceived as kind of a leader within the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, which is a diplomatic grouping within Southeast Asia. So, you know, that's quite different. I do think Prabowo will be more active, more outspoken in that regard. But where I think it's less clear is where exactly his tendencies and his rhetoric will actually translate into reality. You know, keep in mind, one of the things that Jokowi has wanted to see is his successor kind of sustain his foreign policy legacy and his domestic legacy in particular. And so if you are wanting to continue things like, you know, bringing in new infrastructure, promoting new foreign investment, making sure you don't sort of pick sides between the United States and China and, and all of these things, you know, Prabowo is also going to be having that sort of tendency as well, depending on how we see things play out. So I'm not exactly sure how this kind of rhetoric is going to actually translate into actual policies. Now, where might we see change? I think, you know, Prabowo will be very active in terms of some of uh, Indonesia's security and defense policies, because he was a former defense minister. He has been on the record of saying that, you know, assertiveness by China is a big concern and Indonesia needs to do more on that. He's a very sort of traditional nationalist. And so on defense and security issues, I do think we will probably see a harder line from Indonesia. 
a harder line from Indonesia towards China? I would say not to China in the aggregate, but towards particular issues. So with respect to, for example, Chinese assertiveness that's affecting maritime disputes that Indonesia has with China that relate to the South China Sea. Even though Indonesia doesn't technically consider itself a claimant, it does have disputes with China in this regard. Mm -hmm. I think if they occur, you will see a much more clear response from Indonesia that comes from Prabowo and his team. Ah, okay. I do think that on the other hand, he will still continue a lot of the economic linkages with China, presumably because that's really where the investment is coming from. And so far, at least, we haven't really seen a lot of other powers be able to replace that from China. I think one other area I would flag is, you know, Prabowo, as I said, he's a nationalist in a very traditional sense of the word. But there also is the sense, if you look at his rhetoric over the years, you look at some of the rhetoric around the presidential campaign, he's someone who does believe that Indonesia's growth story is part of a broader story where the world is shifting to where the majority of the growth is going to come from Asia. So this notion of Asia for Asians, Indonesia being a kind of regional power within the Indo-Pacific, that is something that very much comports with what Prabowo already believes. Now, the big question there is, what does that mean for his policy towards Western countries? I think with respect to the United States as defense minister, he paid a visit here actually not too long ago to the United States where he presided over defense sales, for example, on defense equipment. So I don't expect that that will change. He is also somebody who has received military training in the United States. So he's got relationships within the United States as well. So that won't change. But I do think that does raise questions about Indonesia's linkages to other countries. You know, for example, during the course of the campaign, Prabowo raised questions about Indonesia doesn't really need Europe anymore, right? And that was made in the context of European restrictions on Indonesian palm oil exports. And Indonesia is you know, one of the largest palm oil exporters in the world, together with Malaysia. Those are the twin sort of giants when it comes to the palm oil industry. So, you know, what, what does that mean for Indonesia's ties to particular European countries? You know, that remains to be seen. I do think in, in a number of these relationships, it's going to depend a lot on the specifics. The final thing I'll say on foreign policy is the trend we've seen with Jokowi, as well as his predecessor, Susilo Bambang Yudhoyuno, who had two terms, a much more globally minded leader relative to Jokowi, is that their approach to issues is one thing. But the other thing to watch for is who do they actually appoint in terms of their foreign minister, their defense minister, how much do they delegate in terms of their decision making? Do they empower the foreign ministry? to sort of undertake positions and approaches to global issues. That's what we saw happening under Jokowi. He himself had very little interest in high geopolitics, but he allowed the foreign ministry to undertake a number of initiatives there as well. On the one hand, that allowed them to make some progress. On the other hand, there was some concerns within Southeast Asia, as well as in some global capitals, that the president himself wasn't very engaged. Mm. Now, what might we see under uh, President Prabowo? You know, perhaps he might be more engaged, but perhaps, you know, he might also rely a lot on his advisors and create multiple centers of power within both the presidential office and then also other institutions to ensure that, you know, he might make the final decision, but there will be a number of voices that will advise him on key issues. In that sense, one of the things we need to watch for 
which is, you know, another thing that played out under Jokowi is lots of, you know, multiple centers of power and disagreements on foreign policy and no clear sense of who is directing particular issues and initiatives. That is something that I think we need to watch for because that might determine some of Indonesia's foreign policy approaches on issues like maritime security, for example. You mentioned earlier that Indonesia is rightly or wrongly viewed as a swing state in geopolitics. It's also kind of viewed broadly, I'd say, as a key vote, a key voice in climate change debates. And I think that's mostly just by virtue of geography and its sheer size. It is also, I learned, like the largest exporter of coal in the world. And you mentioned earlier palm oil, which is often linked to deforestation. So what can you say about how Indonesia's approach to climate change, any domestic conservation efforts or not that we might expect in the future and how the new administration might be the same or different than how the prior administration viewed and approached issues related to climate change? This is a big issue that came before as well in the Jokowi administration. I mean, a good example of this is the Just Energy Transition Partnership, or JETP. Indonesia is one of two countries in Southeast Asia that have these. The other one is Vietnam. But the Indonesians from the get-go have been very focused and seized on this idea of if the idea of these JETP initiatives is to ensure a balance between making sure that countries like Indonesia make the transition away from coal to more renewable energy sources, but also get some financing from developed countries, which have not been adhering to their commitments under the Paris Agreement. And Indonesia has consistently been asking, you know, the funding is really slow to come to fore under the JETP partnership. You know, it's not only governments that are providing that funding, but it's also coming through private companies. So it's a bit indirect. It's hard to sort of corral these. So the JetP initiative has been seen as something that, you know, on the one hand, it's good that Indonesia is at the table and that these countries recognize that Indonesia is really important because within Southeast Asia, as well as globally, Indonesia is one of the prime users of coal. And some of Indonesia's coal power plants they have kind of long lifespan. So it's not going to be something that can be advanced very quickly without some sort of agreement like a JetP partnership. So that, you know, very much remains to be seen. The other part that's very interesting is that Jokowi himself was somebody who through and through, and, and I think if you talk to his uh, advisors that are close to him, you know, he is a economics first president and a domestic first president. And so his main issue is how can we get economic development done? Well, climate is part of that, but it's very much secondary in that respect. The previous president before Jokowi, Susilo Bambang Yudhoyono, was, was the opposite of that. Very much you know, cared about economic development, but also was a globalist, cared a lot about climate change issues, would want to attend a lot of these meetings himself on the global stage. Now, Prabowo, I can't say that, you know, climate is one of his foremost considerations. He's very much somebody who's, you know, ex-military, you know, former defense minister, cares a lot more about geopolitics. I don't think we should foreclose the option that in a Prabowo presidency, we might see a configuration of developments, including in, in certain Indonesian ministries, where, you know, Indonesia's climate ambitions could continue to take shape. You know, I think Prabowo one of the things that we can safely say, he's reinvented himself from a military figure 
with human rights violations to somebody who now is appearing on TikTok videos as kind of a cuddly grandpa, right? So I don't think we should assume that the Prabowo of the past is going to be the Prabowo of the future, or that Prabowo's foreign policy outlook of the past is going to necessarily translate into Indonesia's foreign policy outlook in the future. But as I said, much of it is going to come down to the bottom line as to you know how can countries, including the United States, make the case that they're willing to put money on the table if Indonesia is willing to actually follow through. The one final thing I'll add is, you know, on the Indonesian side, there are challenges too. A lot of these coal plants and uh, sort of traditional energy sources are sourced from state utility organizations. And those utility organizations have their own domestic political sort of agenda. So climate change in Indonesia is as much a political consideration as it is an economic or foreign policy consideration. And, and that won't change under a Prabowo presidency. Prashanth, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much for your time. Good to be with you. Thanks for listening to Global Dispatches. The show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg. It is edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, make sure to follow the show and enable automatic downloads to get new episodes as soon as they're released. On Spotify, tap the bell icon to get a notification when we publish new episodes. And of course, please visit globaldispatches.org to get on our free mailing list, get in touch with me, and access our full archive. Thank you. <laughs>